as we arrive at the end of the liturgical year, the end of the church year. Next week we'll have the first Sunday of Advent. But this last Sunday of ordinary time is the Solemnity of Christ the King. It's also the last Sunday that we'll hear, that we hear from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, which we've been going through the past year. Next week we'll start a new cycle of readings, so we'll be going through the Gospel of Mark. So I've been really touched this year by reflecting on Matthew's gospel and just seeing some of the the themes that he very intentionally weaves into his gospel narrative. Uh, I was especially struck at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, what, what Jesus does right after the Sermon on the Mount with his first healings. In Matthew chapter 8, he comes down from the mountain after the great Sermon on the Mount and and he, he performs his first public miracle. And that's for a, a person that he meets on the way down the mountain who has leprosy. And uh, Jesus goes right up to him, touches him, heals him. It's the last thing that we're expecting because as, a, as a, a person in that time and as a, a Jew, he, he, you never would have approached a person with leprosy like that. Because, first of all, you're a fear of contracting the disease, which is why lep- lepers had to live in quarantine away from everybody else. But also, on a, on a religious level, to come into contact with a leper meant that you were ritually unclean and you'd have to stay away from public worship for a period of time. But Jesus, who's, who's always defying our expectations, who's always surprising us, He goes right up to that person with leprosy, not at all concerned about contagion, not at all concerned about religious propriety, and he goes up and touches that person and heals them. It's surprising. So then as he continues on his way, he gets to the town of Capernaum. He meets a Roman centurion. And the Roman centurion, the soldier, uh, tells him that his slave is very sick at home, paralyzed. Would he please just speak a word to heal his slave? Again, we kind of have a similar dynamic because Jews are not supposed to uh, enter into conversation with Gentiles. They're supposed to stay away. You don't want to be contaminated by their pagan ideas. But Jesus, again, is not concerned with this kind of thinking but rather he, he welcomes this Roman Gentile, begins speaking with him, and indeed says the word, and, and the Roman slave back home, whom he loves so much, is healed. Finally, he gets to his destination, which is Peter's house in Capernaum. And what does he find there at Peter's house? Well, Peter's mother-in-law is very sick with fever and lying on the bed, unable to, to serve them. And so, again, defying the custom of the time, Jesus goes to her bedside, touches her, and she also is healed. This is not, this is not how we would expect a respectable person to, to act, because when, there were very strict roles between men and women. And so for a man to, to go to the bedside of a woman who's not his immediate family member, to touch a woman, He's not his immediate family member. That would have been very taboo, but yet Jesus does it anyway. And so the, the beginning of the healings in Matthew's gospel start with quite a bang. Jesus 
doing all of these things that he's not supposed to do, acting in all of these ways he's not supposed to act. He, he shows himself to be a most unexpected king, a most surprising king, very concerned about people at the margins, people who were often forgotten, abandoned, left out. Those are the people to whom Jesus gravitated. Also in Matthew's Gospel, we have him coming into conflict many times with the the religious authority of his day, with the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, the chief priest. These are the important people in, in that society, in that culture. They're the people you're supposed to win over. Those are the people who you're supposed to be in, be in their good graces, concerned about what they think. Jesus, not at all. He wasn't concerned about what the important people thought. But he's always looking towards the lowly, towards the least, never forgetting them. So this throughout Matthew's gospel, and then finally we get to the end of Matthew's gospel right before the Passion, and the last thing Jesus does before the Passion narrative begins in Matthew's gospel is he gives this parable that we hear today. And it's a parable about the last judgment with the king calling his his subjects before him, and they are going to be judged. And so the, the ones who are going to enter into blessedness go to the right. The ones who are going to enter into damnation go to the left. What's the standard that this king uses regarding whether one goes to heaven or goes to hell? The standard is the corporal works of mercy. Whether that person fed the hungry, gave drink to the thirsty, welcomed the stranger, clothed the naked, visited the sick, visited prisoners. Again, I I just think it's it's so surprising. Today we're celebrating the solemnity of the king of the universe. And what does that king hold to be so important? What are that king's priorities? And how does that compare with people in authority in our own day? What are our politicians concerned about? Are they really concerned about the poor and the needy, or are they concerned about the wealthy people who are going to donate to their political campaigns and impressing them? Are celebrities and popular culture, all the important people uh, in, our, in our society, who's important to them? Usually not the poor. Usually it's popular people, wealthy people, influential people. Those are the important people who we want to impress. But Jesus, he's not, he's, he's not concerned about the so-called important people. But instead, his heart gravitates, is so attracted to the poor, who attract Jesus like a magnet. If somebody's suffering, Jesus is attracted to them. He reaches out to them, goes out to them. And his followers will be judged, you and me, on whether we have come to espouse the same kind of response when we encounter the poor. Does our heart go out to meet them? Do we try to meet their needs? When we see someone in need, do we seek out the needy? This 
This to Jesus is the most important question. It's surprising. It's not how we would expect a king to act or behave. It's not, it's not what we would expect a king's priorities to be. I was thinking about this a lot this weekend because yesterday I had the funeral of uh, a personality from here in Winstead. She was 102 years old, Bernice Errett. Uh, if you're from Winstead, you probably remember Bernice. Well, first working at the, the clinic in town when it first opened, but then she, she worked in the vegetable sec- section of, of Glens for many years. And um, she never married, had a very strong personality. And a mind like a steel trap. And so she knew, um, she didn't know any of the current generation nor their parents. But if, if, it, she, she, if you're from Winstead, she knows who your grandparents are. And she knows who their parents are. And she knows where they lived and what they did and how many kids they had and what their names were. It's really amazing going to visit her. And she was able to stay in her own home until she was 101, despite the fact that probably for the past five years or so, she was stone-cold deaf. Like, you could light a rocket next to her face, and she would not be able to hear it. She couldn't hear a thing. And so visiting, visiting her was very interesting, uh, because... You had, to, you had to write everything, and she kept notebooks around the house for when people would visit her. So she would, because she was so hard of hearing, she, she yelled when she spoke, and then you would write back, and that's what you would do uh, for that time when you were visiting her. And the only reason she was able to stay in her own home in that condition for so long was because she had people who were looking after her, including her next-door neighbor who visited her every day at 10 o'clock and brought her the mail and made sure that she wasn't dead. And then uh, a lady who even, after who, even after she moved away from Winstead, would come back every other Friday and buy groceries for her and spend time with her and other people as well who were generous to her. So one day I was visiting her just, just after this lady had um, brought her groceries. And Bernice looks at me and says, why do people do this for me? I don't understand. Why do they do it? And my first thought was, well, it's because they're good people, which they are. But actually, the more that I've thought about that, I've realized it's the real reason that people would stop and help her is because God is good. And God was showing his love for Bernice through those people. God was loving Bernice through, the, through those practical acts of service. So this is one of, one of the reasons why God demands, God in Jesus demands these works from us, the corporal works of mercy, because God loves his people, and the way that God shows his love for his people is through us, through the ways that he inspires people to minister to others. God always uses other people when he is showing his love for a person. So that's one reason why we have to perform the works of mercy is because God loves his people and wants his people to know his love, but that requires us to be involved. 
so that people would know God's love through our own works of charity. But that, this actually isn't the reason, and that's so true, but this is not the reason that Jesus gives in, in the gospel today for why we have, if we want to go to heaven, we have to perform the corporal works of mercy. This is not the reason. The reason is not because <clears throat> we show God's love for the poor when we serve them. This is not because God loves the poor through us. It's because God loves, and, and here's the heart of it, because God loves me through his poor, and God loves you through his poor. This is why Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Naked and you clothed me, ill, you and you cared for me in prison and you visited me. The people are so confused when the king say this. We've never seen you ill. We've never seen you hungry or thirsty. When, when did we see you? This way, and King Jesus, in the person of the King, says, When you did it for one of these least ones, you were doing it for me. In other words, Jesus so loves his poor that he identifies himself with them. He unites himself to them so that when we encounter the poor person, we're encountering Jesus. Jesus is really there. That's what Jesus is telling us today. And the saints understood this. I think immediately of Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa who ministered to the poorest of the poor on this poor planet, in slums, in ghettos, working at, sending her sisters to serve at AIDS hospices, orphanages, um, so many play, uh, shelters, and working with the homeless and just people in terrible situations. And Mother Teresa would tell her sisters, when you meet that poor person, you are meeting Jesus in his distressing disguise. You're meeting Jesus in his distressing disguise. And I can relate to that because we can be distressed by the poor person who's in front of us. When we go into Minneapolis, the person who's Begging on the side of the road, we can find ourselves distressed by that person, that person's plight. Or the person in town that um, is so needy and we don't even know how to help them. There's something that's distressing to us about their very person. Even, even when I would go and visit Bernice monthly, sometimes I had to give my, myself a little pep talk to go and not put it off and put it off and put it off. It was, um, when you visited Bernice, I mean, she, she could never hear a doorbell, so you had to go right into her house and then just find her in her house. Usually she was in her recliner. And if she was asleep, you couldn't like yell at her, yell at her to make her wake up. And you also knew that she'd be very hurt and disappointed if you didn't wake her up and, and you stopped. So you'd have to shake her. And sometimes she was sleeping pretty deeply. And I found that very awkward. And so it was distressing to me. So if we think of the poor people in our lives and think of what, 
how, how we, in, in all honesty, are a little bit distressed uh, by them and by their plight. Whether it's the person who has a speech impediment and we can't really understand what they're saying, or the person who just is so needy or maybe even irritates us because of the way that they act or the way that they speak. Uh, maybe someone has physical deformities that are distressing to us. I mean, so many ways that we can be distressed by the poor. And Jesus wants us to be assured that when we reach out to them anyway, despite our distress, when we reach out to them anyway, serve them, love them anyway, we're meeting him there. He meets us there. And he waits for us there because he loves us and wants to love us through his poor. So this is what flips this whole parable around, is that Jesus is not saying, I love the poor, so you need to love them too. He's saying, I love you, and I want you to know me and encounter me. And so you need to encounter me in the, it, where I am, which is in my poor people. I love you so much, I want you to know me where I am, and it's there. It's there in my poor. So we come to Mass here, thank God, to meet Jesus here at the altar. When we leave for Mass, Jesus wants us to find him where we know that he is. And where is he? He's in his poor people. So let's ask God today for the grace to live this gospel. Our salvation depends on it, truly. Jesus says so. But also, if we want to meet Jesus, then we, then we need to meet him where he is, in the Eucharist and the sacraments, and in his poor people whom he loves so much, he identifies himself with them. What a king we have. No king acts like this except our king, the king of love, the king of mercy, the king of compassion, the king of the poor.